Hi, this is Steve Hargadon, and welcome to the Future of Education. It's Tuesday, August 28, 2012, and our special guest is Tony Wagner, returning to talk about his new book, Creating Innovators, The Making of Young People Who Will Change the World. Thanks for being here, Tony. My pleasure, Steve. Looking forward to the conversation. I am as well. You'll notice there is a slight lag when Tony speaks, and that's because he wasn't able to come in through the Blackboard Collaborate room. He's on a telephone bridge. I apologize in advance if I talk over him. If I notice that I'm doing that, I'll quickly be quiet because you're here to listen to him. Thanks to Mighty Bell and Blackboard Collaborate for helping to support the future of education. It is a Web 2.0 Labs project. This is sort of part of the Learning 2.0 conference. I'd arranged with Tony to have this interview prior to the uh, sort of formation of the Learning 2.0 conference, since so we just decided to leave it where it is. But many of you have heard about it from that, which is also part of Connected Educator Month. And both of these have been really terrific events. If you want to see any of the recordings of last week's sessions and keynotes, just go to learning20.com. Coming up in October is our two-day Future of Libraries conference sponsored by San Jose State University. If you are a librarian, you will love this conference. It is virtual and it's free, and we encourage everyone to participate, and especially if you're interested in proposing to present, we'd love to have you. And then in November is our five-day, 24-hour-day global education conference. I don't think there's anything quite like this conference. So if you have an interest in globally connecting students and teachers, please join us. Uh, we'll probably this year, because of a partnership with IRON, we expect between 20 and 30,000 attendee logins. So it should just be a blast. Coming up on the Future of Education, Thursday night, Michael Strong comes to talk to us about Socratic teaching, entrepreneurism, and education. Ronald Walk will be here on September 4th to talk about his book, Wasting Minds. Um, Lots of fun sessions coming up. You can see they're on the list. Um, hope, hopefully something that will be of value to you. If you've missed any of the sessions, they are, all they are all recorded in full Blackboard Collaborate form and in MP3 file. Uh, we've listed all of the events from last week there at the top, the keynote speakers. Uh, really fun to have Sugana Mitra on. I've been hoping to have him on for a long, long time. Uh, and as you can see, many other really terrific speakers there. So this is your chance to let us know where you're participating from. Look to the left of the map. You're looking for a star icon. You click on that twice and then click on the map. And you can also shout out in the chat. And I'm going to have to communicate to Tony where these, we're seeing New Zealand, India, Lots of North America, possibly Hawaii, Virginia, Georgia, Northbrook, Illinois, Ottawa, Canada. We are sure glad to have you all here. Thank you for coming. Feel free to keep those, uh, keep posting in the chat those locations while I move us forward. Tony, this is a really interesting book. And before we kind of launch into the subject, 
I'm intrigued by the embedded videos, and I loved them. Has that been a pretty universal response? Yeah, there's a few people who've asked uh, whether or not, and maybe it's a distraction from the reading experience. But, but in general, blocks of folks say that, well, it's value added. They, they've enjoyed it. But I get no credit for that, Steve. That was entirely uh, Bob Compton's innovation. As you may know, and as, the, as your listeners may know, Bob Compton uh, collaborated with me to do this documentary film about Finland's education system called The Finland Phenomenon. And uh, he was the producer, he was the filmmaker. And we were sitting in a cafe in uh, Singapore a year and a half ago, and he said, Tony, you can't just write a book about innovation. It has to be innovative. And so he came up with this idea of embedding these codes in the book and persuaded me and then my publisher to do that. So Bob Compton deserves 100% of the credit. So we had Bob on the show actually to talk about the Finland phenomenon, which was really fun. I'm bringing up your website right now. Are all of the videos in the book on the website? They are on a separate website that we created for this called creatinginnovators.com. Yes, they're all on that. That's the one I'm showing, and I've just put the link in the chat. Um, so yeah, very fun. I actually felt very comfortable. Go ahead. Sorry, I'm just saying my website, where all of my articles and other kinds of content are uh, uh, warehoused, is TonyWagner.com. Okay, and I'll pull that up in just a second as people have been able to check out Creating Innovators. Um, I felt very comfortable um, not watching every video. I watched the ones that I felt you know, were going to be particularly interesting to me. So I didn't feel it detracted at all. I was quite appreciative of it. Okay. So this book felt to me as though it was as much a parenting book as it was an education book. I think that was your intent, right? Absolutely. We can't do this alone as educators. We need parents to be an educated constituency, an educated um, advocacy group. And so, you know, the number one question I frequently get asked in conversations is, yeah, well, what about the parents? So I actually uh, tried to write a book as much for educators and parents as, and also business leaders as I could manage. Your argument of the book is that we desperately need to shift into promoting innovation and entrepreneurism um, in, in schools and in our children's lives, and that standardized testing isn't going to get us where we want to go. But most people don't really know what to do in its place. Is that accurate? Yeah, I think that's the short version. I don't mean to put words in your mouth. And it, and it feels like there's a subtext throughout the whole book of for parents, students, and teachers that the, the examples you show um, are, are pretty much um, individuals who are not following conventional paths. So the choice to do this does mean you will be doing things differently than others are doing them. I think that's true for the young innovators in my profile who have the courage to drop out or uh, pursue other paths. What struck me even more, Steve, 
was the fact that when I asked each one of these young innovators what made what teacher made the greatest difference in their lives, the teachers were outliers, teaching in ways that were very different than their peers, but very consistent with the kinds of teaching I saw in those few schools that I think have a real reputation for creating innovators. Uh, high Tech High, New Tech High, Olin uh, College of Engineering, MIT's Media Lab, at, at, and um, the Institute of Design, or otherwise known as the D School at Stanford. So what you find is are these islands of extraordinary teaching, whether it's the outlier teachers who taught my young innovators existing in regular schools from elementary school to graduate school, or in these few uh, colleges, high schools, and graduate schools that are really making a difference. And you see a kind of teaching and learning and forms of assessment that are really radically at odds with what we see in most schools in very fundamental respects, which I could spell out. And that, for me, was the most stunning pattern that I discerned in, in the research for this book. Because I didn't set out to find that. Uh, I didn't set out with that as a hypothesis. It's what came from the data. So we've talked a lot on this show about how the more thoughtful approaches to teaching and learning typically exist as secondary narratives, but have a very hard time becoming the primary narrative. Right. Can you see a path? Where, where what you've described and shown in the book could become a more accepted way of thinking about teaching and learning? I think, first and foremost, we have to redefine what does it mean to be an educated adult in the 21st century. Uh, most people don't recall that we got where we are because Lou Gerstner, from CEO of IBM, David Kearns, who was CEO of Xerox, and other concerned CEOs called for a national education summit in 1988. All the CEOs came, all senators came, all kinds of folks came. That first year, educators weren't invited, except for maybe a token one or two, because they weren't trusted. And that's a whole other conversation. And I think their lack of trust had some validity. But the point was that National Education Summit was a springboard for creating what I call Accountability 1.0, which drives our system to this day. It created the standards movement, which became then the No Child, no Child Left Behind movement. And so I think we need a new summit to redefine what does it mean to be an educated adult now 25 years later in order to create accountability 2.0. Steve, I don't think we're going to get anywhere unless and until we define the outcomes that matter most, number one, and then create an accountability system that is aligned with the outcomes that matter. We are not testing the skills that matter most for career college or citizenship readiness. And that puts our kids and our country in more and more jeopardy every single year. I really want to follow that thread of conversation, but I think I'll save that toward the end. 
So you, the, the book is about innovation and entrepreneurism, and you uh, conflate the two terms with some understanding that they're not identical, but for you they represent very similar traits. What is it you're talking about? Well, there's two different kinds of issues. One is, what does our country need to thrive in, a tw in the 21st century? And I don't know how many people know this, but you know, I discovered this in the process of this research. 70% of our economy is based on consumer spending. You know, at the end of World War II, when there were no competitors, we were the number one manufacturer in the world. We made products for the rest of the world. Now, we consume products and services made elsewhere. So that's the first point. We've come, become a very consumer-driven economy. Second point is that consumer spending is fueled by people going into debt. The savings rate in 2007, just before our giant economic collapse, was minus 2%. People pulling money out of their houses, putting money on their credit cards as fast as they possibly could, leading me to conclude we've created an economy based on people spending money they do not have to buy things they may not need, threatening the planet in the process. That's not sustainable economically, environmentally or spiritually, in my view. So what's the alternative? And when you look at the writings of economists, as I've done, everybody agrees we need an economy more driven by innovation. And what that means is that we have to become a country that produces more better ideas to solve more different kinds of problems, not just disruptive innovations in STEM fields, science, technology, engineering, and so on, but also incremental innovations in whatever field, beginning with how to create a sustainable planet. And so really the premise of the book is trying to explore the question of what must we do differently if this is all true? What must we do differently as parents, as teachers, as mentors, as employers, to develop the capacities of many, many more of our young people to be innovative. Because you know, that's a human trait. We're born curious, creative, imaginative, until as Sir Kenneth Robinson says, those qualities are schooled out of us. You know, the average four-year-old asks 100 questions a day and imagines all kinds of possibilities until those qualities are schooled out of that child and they learn that it's more about getting the right answers than asking good questions. So at its simplest, I'm really trying to fundamentally explore the question of how do we create innovators as parents, teachers, mentors, and employers? I don't want to over-dramatize the situation, but part of what you're talking about is the value of independent thinking, and it seems as though there are institutions that depend on us being more compliant and less independent thinking. Is that going to make it hard to accomplish this, especially those firms that spend the lobbying dollars or influence policy? Well, you know, Steve, that's a really fascinating question. We educators, I think, are 
sort of programmed to be skeptical of anything from the business world. And 25 years ago, the whole idea of being sort of prepared for the world of business, the world of jobs, and so on, was almost to sully our hands. You know, oh, I don't do vocational education. Because we assumed that to be prepared for the business world meant to turn your capacities to think off, uh, to simply show up on time, and things of that sort. What most people don't realize, and what I discovered when I wrote my last book, The Global Achievement Gap, where I interviewed a wide variety of executives about the skills that are most important, is that the skills for a good career, the skills for continuous learning, and the skills for active and informed citizenship in the 21st century have converged. They are the same skills. And the, the thing that concerns me greatly is that we educators are hypercritical and very skeptical of the business world, and they are about us. I don't, you know, this is a two-way street. It's oil and water. These two kind of constituencies don't like, trust, or respect one another. And yet, we really have a common set of outcomes that we need for our children. And we've got to figure out a way to work collaboratively. So the short answer is I, no. I do not think that to prepare young people today for the world of work means telling them to no longer think critically or to uh, turn off their minds and just show up on time. That's not what the world of work in the 21st century requires. That's a good answer. So in the book, you talk about students being differently motivated. And there's a classic quote from a, a young worker who says, I'm not coin operated. Well, what does drive young workers now? <laughs> well, that's such a wonderful quote because it came from a conversation with my friend and collaborator, Bob Compton, who, as you know, uh, created uh, the movie we did, The Finland Phenomenon, and did all of the videos for, the, for this uh, book. And he was talking about all of the startups he's done and how young people have changed. And he was talking about a conversation he was having with a young 20-something who was working for him and not putting out a lot. You know, the guy wanted his lunch time and he wanted his workout time and so on and so forth. And so he turned to the guy and said, you know, would you, you know, be willing to, you know, put out more, spend more hours if I gave you a piece of the business? And that's when he said, Bob, I am not coin operated. Well, what it really means is that I think this generation, the post-industrial generation in our society and a few others like Finland as well, is far less motivated by the desire to make a lot of money. They've come from the middle class. Either that, or even if they're from poverty, they've seen those middle class lifestyles and trappings. Either way, they said, well, you know, that's not what's most important to me. I want something different. I want to make a difference in the world. To paraphrase Steve Jobs, you know, I want to put a ding in the universe. And what was so striking to me in the interviews with all of these young innovators in their 20s that I did for this book is that every one of them 
put a value on making a difference, giving back far more highly than making money or making, you know. I read the book, I wondered to myself, because I have four children and I've seen this very same shift within our own span of our children. Could some of this be related to the uh, to social media and their much higher interaction with each other socially and feeling that um, is more of a priority? Did, has that ever occurred to you? I think it's wonderfully rich and complex. I don't think anybody's figured it out. But I think the, some of the factors are the impact of the media, where kids have been exposed to a range of problems and challenges that we all face as a planet and a species at a far, far younger age. That's point one. Point two, they've been empowered by social media to believe that by co collaborating, in fact, they might be able to have an impact or make a difference. Point three, I think they're beginning to absorb the reality that the majority of them, even if they wanted to make a lot of money, are probably not going to be able to achieve the same lifestyle as many of their parents from an upper middle class background. So it's an interesting sort of issue of how do they adapt, adopt to the reality, you know, their parents drive two or three fancy cars. They're saying, well, you know, I don't need a car. I'll do a zip car if I need a car, and I'll bike because I prefer that anyway. Their parents, you know, maybe had two houses, uh, and they're saying, well, you know, maybe I don't need to buy a house. Maybe I'll just rent because I'm going to move around and have a lot of different jobs. So I don't have the answer to this, Steve, but I am intrigued by how it may be that this generation is really adapting to new economic realities and embracing like that them description as values. There's a chart in the book that I came back to over and over and over again. It's the Teresa Amabile uh, framework, expertise, creative thinking, and motivation. I, yes. I loved the yeah. delineation and the overlap. Um, yeah. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Sure. I've been thinking a lot about that lately, Steve. You know, we in education are preoccupied and ex extremely focused on creating expertise or, you know, at its more basic level, content knowledge, right? That's our job. Our job is to transmit content. Well, little problem. Content knowledge today has become a commodity. It's free. It's on the Internet. It's on every Internet-connected device. It's growing exponentially, changing constantly. You know, whether it's Khan Academy or edX or Udacity or Coursera, right now today you can download content without a teacher. And so content is no longer the value added that it once was. Uh, the real issue is not what you know, but what you can do with what you know, which is a completely different education problem. Then the issue becomes, what is your skill and what is your will, meaning motivation. So I think of this as three legs of a stool or 
the three pillars of education. Certainly, you know, expertise matters. It's a ticket to play. But it doesn't make you a player, not in the 21st century. The second pillar, then, is skill. Uh, Teresa Mobley calls it creative thinking skills. Call it my seven survival skills from my last book. Call it whatever you want. But the point is, it's your ability to think critically, to be agile and adaptable, to apply what you've learned to new questions, new problems, to be a just-in-time learner, meaning to really research something that's brand new, set of skills, creative thinking skills. But then the third one is will, meaning motivation. And I've come to see that as probably the most important. Because if you're intrinsically motivated, if you're curious, imaginative, if you are a lifelong learner, you will have the motivation to acquire new knowledge and new skills as needed all through your life. If you don't have that motivation, you're stuck. You get, you get the knowledge you got in school, and you're done. You're, that's the end. So of those three pillars, you know, we too often stop at content knowledge or expertise. We don't think very much at all about what skills am I teaching in this class and how am I assessing them. And we think even less about how am I motivating students to learn. So I've been advocating recently in an article and in, in talks about the Google rule. So here's the Google rule. Uh, every single employee at Google has the equivalent of 20% of their time to work on any project of their choice. In effect, it's permission to play on company time one day a week, any project. Make up projects, join people who are doing other projects, and Google Earth, Google Mail, and all kinds of the very best Google products have come out of this 20% time rule. And they're not unique. Uh, the Gore Associates, who make Gore-Tex, have a 10% rule. 3M Company was the first to initiate this, and they had a 15% rule. Any of you who use who post-it notes are playing with a toy that somebody from 3M figured out what to do with this failed glue, a glue that didn't stick, right? So they that all came out of 3M's 15% uh, rule. So my modest proposal with respect to developing capacities for intrinsic motivation, they were all born with. My idea is that we, we instill the 20% time Google rule in every classroom in the country. So that we tell kids when they start the school year, when they start my class, you're going to have 20% of your time to work on any projects of your choice. To ask a question, to pursue an investigation, to become better at something, to become an expert at something, to explore something new. But 20% of your time is going to be given over not to test prep, not to you know, acquiring more content, but to developing the intrinsic motivations we're born with. Because Steve, you know, we're born curious, creative, and imaginative. And I think one of the great challenges in a post-industrial society like ours is to make sure we don't lose those motivations and in fact strengthen them. A wonderful series of portraits in the book of 
students, and then you go through the um, a comparison of the kind of themes that come up in each. And one very consistent theme is that the parents felt that engagement trumped content. They were supportive of their kids. They wanted their kids to be doing something passionately, but they didn't care as much about what it was as much as they cared that it was something that they felt deeply about. So how does that help us to uh, rethink school? Well, it, it comes back to what we've been talking about, where in, in this new world, what you know, or what kind of transcript you have, or coming from a name brand college, matters far less than what you can do with what you know. And so all of the parents of these young innovators, I think, intuitively understood that their children were going to be far, far better prepared if they had the motivation to put in the 10,000 hours that Malcolm Gladwell talks about or writes about in The Outliers, to, to have persistence, tenacity, and resilience. So it comes back very much, I think, to motivation, that we need as educators in our classes when we start school this week, next week, week after, not just to think about the content I have to transmit, not just to think about the skills I am teaching in the process of engaging kids in rich and challenging content, but also am I providing kids chances to figure out what it is they're passionate about, what it is they're interested in. You know, I found this fascinating developmental spiral of play to passion to purpose that had made the fundamental difference in the lives of these kids. Good job leading you there, but that's where I was hoping you would end up, is the play passion and purpose. And, and you make the comment that passion was the most often mentioned word in your interviews, but that the word purpose actually takes us a little bit deeper. Yeah. I. I mentioned uh, the, the book Drive uh, by uh, Daniel Pink, where he is, uh, talks also about motivation in ways that I think are very interesting. But he is skeptical of passion as a driver. And it, I, I came out on the same end. While passion is mentioned constantly, especially by young adults, you can't sustain passion in work or, as it turns out, in love, of and by itself, right? It's a great starter, but it, it won't carry you the 20, 30, or 50 years. And what was so fascinating about these young people who came from both privilege and poverty, you know, in almost equal measure, is that beyond passion, they had a sense of purpose. They had a desire to give back, put a ding in the universe, as Steve Jobs talked about, or to make a difference in some way. They wanted to make a difference more than they wanted to make money. And that expression of purpose, which both parents and teachers had reinforced and encouraged, the ones who made the greatest difference in their lives, was a more mature expression of their sense of passion, and also, interestingly, a sense of adult play. 
You know, they talked about work as fun. They talked about work as kind of something they enjoyed playing with. Not in the child sense of play, because it was disciplined play. They worked very, very long hours. They worked very, very hard. But it was to a higher purpose that integrated play and passion. Into so the adults that you portray, um, whether they're a parent, a teacher, or a mentor, all seem to also have this, as you described, same sense of uh, passion and purpose. How important is it to be modeling this to students? I think it's huge. Uh, you know, it really, all of these teachers were outliers. Some of these parents, I think, were very conscious of the fact that they were trying to parent in different ways. You know, values are caught more than they are taught. And we're talk, talking about catching the values of the willingness to take risks, the willingness to explore, to create, to experiment, to be curious. And really, that's what these kids had. They had at least a couple of adults in their lives, and not a lot, not a lot. Very few of them could name more than one teacher that made a real difference. But they had at least one teacher who modeled these behaviors of a willingness to take risks, experiment, explore, create, question. And I think that made a huge difference. So you know, in a sense, one of the real challenges for us as teachers in the classroom as we start the school year is, how do I model the capacities to be an innovator? How do I model uh, a willingness to take risks? A willingness to iterate, one of my new favorite words, Steve, not about failing. It's about iterating, uh, evolving, learning from mistakes, and moving and pushing forward. How do I model agility and adaptability? How do I model initiative? How do I model so many of these qualities that I think really make the critical difference. So you do some great profiling uh, like of Olin College. Uh, did you encounter any secondary schools where you felt like the administration had provided that same kind of an environment for the teachers? Absolutely. Uh, you know, I, this book is more of a focus on the college problem because, frankly, so much well, two things. First of all, I started this research with the naive assumption that our major name brand research one universities are the greatest contributors to innovation, Stanford, Harvard, MIT, and the like. Well, I found that that wasn't true. I found that, that in fact, the incentive structure in research one universities does not create innovation. It creates people who have an extremely limited expertise in very, very narrow subjects whose main purpose and passion in life is to find a few students who are like them and then induct them into their doctoral programs. And that the real innovation in these universities are often being done by outliers who do not have tenure and will never get tenure because their major concern is teaching young people and developing these capabilities. I'm talking about Harvard, Stanford, MIT, every single one of those places I went, I found the teacher who made the greatest difference was not tenured and was not going to get tenured. 
So I focused on the college problem because I think colleges dictate the high school curriculum to an extraordinary and excessive degree. But having said that, as you know, Steve, in my last book, The Global Achievement Gap, I focused primarily on high schools, and I, and I highlighted a some high schools that I think are doing an extraordinary difference. And if I look back on that now, as I did a little bit in this book, Creating Innovators, I look at High Tech High, I look at the New Tech High Network, and I really see a continuum of skills and teaching from those high schools straight through colleges like Olin, all the way to graduate schools like MIT Media Lab where all of these kids are doing almost entirely interdisciplinary courses, where they're encouraged to pursue their passions, to make a difference, to have a sense of purpose, where they're encouraged to work collaboratively, where they're encouraged to take risks. There's a continuum from grade 7 through 14 of a set of teaching and learning experiences that are remarkably consistent across We've all We've talked about High Tech High on the show before, and, and you highlight the fact that this great story of they're actually creating a um, postgraduate program for teachers so that they could actually teach them what they wanted them to know, right? You know, I, I continue to admire the work at High Tech High, which is now 4,500 students. It's not one school. It's 4,500 students, 12 schools. It's K-12 plus a graduate school of education. Why did they create a graduate school of education? Because they were so incredibly disappointed with the kinds of programs they had to put their teachers through to get them certified, and the kinds of graduates they were seeing from other ed schools, they decided to create their own. And so I think this points a finger to another entire problem, which is our teacher preparation programs, which are not developing the capabilities of educators that are most needed today by schools like High Tech High and that I think will be increasingly needed so the, by schools. Does the Finland story really help to define some of this here, both the, the way in which the teachers are uh, prepared, their autonomy, and the modeling of the, their own personal interests and passions? Did, did that experience influence your thinking here? Very much so. Uh, I think as you and some of your readers know, I was invited by the National Board of Education to uh, collaborate and with the National Board of Education there, I'm sorry, the, to uh, really explore the whole question of uh, how the education system there, which is arguably the best in the country, uh, can uh, adapt and change and improve for the next decade. And so I had an opportunity to spend a lot of time there, because I agreed on the condition that I could visit classes and learn about their program. And so what I came to understand is, first and foremost, they developed a consensus beginning 40 years ago about the need to not just incrementally improve their education system, but to transform it. They were an underperforming agrarian economy with a stunningly mediocre education system, and they knew that to create a knowledge economy for the 21st century, they're going to have to do things very, very differently. 
So first and foremost, they eliminated all forms of tracking. They said every student should be educated to the same standard. This was back in the 70s. And then they realized, oops, oh my gosh, this is going to require teachers who are dramatically better prepared and more skillful. So their real innovation was in the transformation of the teaching profession. Beginning in the late 70s, every teacher had to have a master's degree, and not just one that you get sort of mail order, right? A real master's degree requiring real research and real content expertise. And they, over time, really gave those teachers more and more responsibility. In the words of Andreas Slesher, who's head of data analysis for OECD, they transformed teaching from a blue-collar working class job where everybody does the same thing and you're all on the same page by October 10th to a white-collar job where you're constantly having to adapt and adopt and do research in your own classroom about how best to engage learners. So right now today, Finland only accepts 10% of the total number of applicants into their schools of ed. They closed most of their schools of ed. They only have eight preparation programs today. And so the profession is one of the highest status professions in the country. It's not the highest paid. They don't get a lot more than our teachers. In fact, I think it's about the same. But it's nevertheless a profession that is extremely highly regarded and highly sought after. And I think it, it begins to suggest some of the very fundamental changes we need to make. And when I go to places like High Tech High, I see a comparable kind of esprit de corps and sense of professionalism that I, I really I think is too often lacking in our, so many of our schools where teachers' jobs, they feel, is simply to teach to test that tell nothing about college career or citizenship readiness in the 21st century. So teachers are profoundly demoralized. They're teaching the test they don't agree with, they don't believe in, and at some level they, they feel like they're not sure what their purpose in life is and what their profession really stands for. There's another thread with the parents' behavior, which was their uh, allowance of children making significant decisions and trusting their judgment. Uh, is that, am I right in thinking that that's a part of the Finland story as well? And in your own mind, how important is it for students to begin to exercise agency in their own learning? Well, I think it's huge. In Finland, um, one-third of students' high school curriculum is electives. They choose what they want to study. Uh, when it, the first test they take is the high school matriculation exam for graduation from high school. Other than the native language exam, they can choose what tests or exams they take. They can choose two, three, or four years to prepare for those exams. They can choose, even prior to that, whether they're going to take an academic track or a career and vocational track. And 45% of the kids choose career and vocational. We're very rapidly creating a homogenous education system where kids have zero choices, no electives, and no opportunity to choose a more hands-on career vocational curriculum, which I think is a terrible, terrible disservice to our kids. But beyond that, you know, there's a sense of pervasive trust in the 
Finland education system that I found among the parents of innovators, but is largely lacking in our education system. The motto of Finland's education system is trust through professionalism. So it's not a kind of carte blanche. It's not a trust anything and everything. It's a reciprocal and relational accountability. I trust you because you are a very, very highly trained professional. So the ministry trusts the municipalities, the towns, to adapt and adopt the curriculum as needed. They, they had a vastly defined national curriculum that has now been pared down to some short number of guidelines. The municipalities, in turn, trust the schools and the educators to adapt and adopt the curriculum as needed to do what they're required to do, but to, to adapt it. The teachers trust the students. There are no filters on computers for the internet in any of the schools that I visited in Finland. The teachers trust the students to be responsible and to use these technologies appropriately. So trust pervades the system. And these are qualities that I think are almost completely absent in our education systems and in the kind of parenting that I see. I see helicopter parents who trust that their kids are going to get into trouble and cause problems and, and need to be protected no matter what at all costs and schools that don't trust kids. I have one more question, and then I want to switch to the Q&A. I saw Adrian's question in the chat. I'm sure there have been others that I might have missed. I'm going to encourage you in the audience, if you have a question, to feel free to put it in the chat or to raise your hand, which is the third icon over in the participant window, and I can give you the microphone. Um, Tony, I, oh, go, we've got a question right away. Um, I would like to make a counter argument and to hear your response to it. You mention uh, Huck Finn in the book, and uh, it just has lingered with me, and I really smiled, because in many ways uh, we have this pervasive sense in America of the sort of rebellious, the, uh, the school dropout who makes good, the, the person who doesn't conform and kind of drives things. Can the argument be made that uh, social and political and economic policy are more likely to drive innovation and entrepreneurship than education, and that education is actually sort of a reflection of those policies. How do you respond to that? Well, I think it's chicken and egg. Uh, right now, I think uh, assessment drives instruction. What gets tested is what gets taught. And that's policy, right? Accountability 1.0 is national policy. And if I were looking for one lever that would make the, the greatest difference in the short run, it would be to create accountability 2.0 to assess the skills that matter most. But then it becomes a matter of how you translate that in the classroom. And so that's where I think educators being innovators and taking risks make an enormous difference. You know, John Dewey had a huge impact in this world. And before that, Maria Montessori did. They weren't about policy. They were about creating a vision of education. So I actually think it's both. 
it's really not either or, and I don't frankly know which is chicken and which is egg here. You know, both are in, are involved and I think indispensable in the process of moving. Some good forward. questions, uh, Zeus. I'm going to ask Adrian's question first because I think it was posted before you raised your hand, but then I'll quickly come to you. So Tony, Adrian wants to know. Do you think that the U.S. approach is stemming from an increasing capitalistic approach? What are you pointing? What you are pointing to is the importance of the country being more interested in people than money. Well, let me back step a half a step. The extraordinary thing about Finland, of course, is that there is no poverty and that the disparities between the highest paid and the lowest paid uh, people are dramatically less. So teachers don't earn that much. But on the other hand, relative to doctors and lawyers, they're in the ballpark. I deeply believe that our achievement gap is fundamentally a poverty gap. And we're not talking about poverty in America. We're not talking about equality of opportunity in America, which is less and less and less every single year. I don't know that that's so much capitalism as our form, our brand of capitalism. Finland has a higher uh, ratio of entrepreneurialism, innovation, and R&D than does our country. They're, they're actually you know, doing pretty well in the capitalist sphere of things. But they have a social safety net. We're in the process of gutting. So I think our brand of capitalism is creating haves and have-nots at an ever more extreme rate. And we're not talking about that. And that's one of my greatest concerns when it comes to education. Bruce, I'm giving you the microphone capability. To turn your microphone on, you click on the talk button at the top left. Let's see how you do. Am I there? Can you hear me? Your microphone isn't. There you go. Yep. Okay. We can. All right. Wonderful. Um, Tony, I'm very curious about one thing. Um, I'm a former teacher educator. I'm now trying to develop an online business around the future of learning and developing some of these skills. And I'm doing an experiment right now about uh, letting other people in on the process of me learning how to do that. And what I'm running against. Uh, up against, and I think a lot of teachers are as well who are future oriented, is that there's so much content out there and very few people that are developing teaching skills and methods to integrate that content in user-friendly application-oriented ways. Just trying to get the tech stuff down <laughs> on my website is an exercise in frustration over these segmented um, different ways of talking about this, a similar applied project that require a whole lot of energy and time just to assemble. And I'm wondering if there are good resources out there of academies or consortiums or people working together to create those sort of macro integrated ways to uh, accelerate uh, the application of content. Uh, to be honest with you, I don't know the answer to that question. but. You know, it reminds me of the early days of operating systems and the Internet. This problem is going to get solved very, very quickly. Why? Because all of the major players are suddenly engaged with edX, Udacity, Coursera, 
Khan Academy and others, everybody is working on the problem you're describing. And more and more, there are business spin-offs around online learning. So I, you know, I don't have any kind of advice for you except stay tuned and hang in there and keep, keep your head up because I think this is going to be a space where there's going to be more accelerating innovation Tony, than only Diana wants else to know, now. what are some specific actionable things that teachers and administrators can do to move the conversation and the system forward? I think, first of all, school and district leaders need to cause a conversation in their communities about what are the fundamental changes that have happened in our world in the last 25 years. And given those changes, what are the most important outcomes we need to think about for our graduates, whether they be 12th grade, 8th grade, 5th grade. And in a K-12 system, I want to see that outline. I'm sorry, see that uh, aligned so that when we define 12th grade outcomes, we then backwards map that to 8th and 5th. So the first step is to create understanding and urgency about a changing world. That's what Finland did so successfully that we've not done. We continue to think, oh, the problem is disadvantaged kids and disadvantaged schools. And our middle class schools are just fine. And if we only raise the levels of achievement of our disadvantaged kids up to our middle class kids, all will be well. Well, of course we have to do that. But if we only do that, Steve, we're going to leave all of our kids behind. And our country will be even more at risk economically, and I think even in terms of security, national security. So the first problem is to create a deep understanding and urgency about a changing world through conversation, through shared readings, through interviews with local employers and the like. Then I think we have to define a few of the most important outcomes. And whether you use my seven survival skills or the uh, Partnership for 21st Century Skills list or um, Ed Leader 21, which is a spin-off of the partnership, there are four Cs, critical thinking, creativity, collaboration, communication. It doesn't matter. What matters is you define a set of clear outcomes beyond content that are critical. And then you have to develop assessments for those outcomes. What gets assessed is what gets taught. And if we're only assessing for the state tests, we're going to leave our kids, all of them, behind. So I believe very strongly in the idea of digital portfolios that follow the students. So we create digital portfolios beginning in first grade that follow the students through school. That is evidence of progressive mastery of those few skills that we've defined as being most important in the 21st century. And we've clearly tried to establish what is proficiency for critical thinking. First of all, define it. What is critical thinking? By content area, grade level. What does it look like in student work? What is the level of proficiency we should expect? Uh, we then explore. Uh, assessments like the College and Work Readiness Assessment, CWRA, which I think is an excellent online assessment of the skills that matter most. So that's in terms of skills and the steps we can take. In terms of motivation, I mentioned before the Google 20% rule, where I would love to see 20% of all class time devoted to the Google rule, devoted to the idea 
of students having opportunities to go deeper, to explore, to investigate, pose their own questions, become their own experts. So those are a few steps that I would like to see every classroom, every school, every district in this country take. And they're doable. They could be done tomorrow, Steve. They cost little to no money at all. What they require is courage and conviction. So um, Dennis wants to know, why did you use the title Creating Innovators rather than a title like Educating for Innovation? Well, first and foremost, I don't think it's just about education. I think all of us have a role to play in creating innovators, parents, teachers, mentors, employers. If I said educating for innovation, you know, it would be all stuck on the backs of us as teachers. We can't do it alone, Steve. And so I think it has to be a societal commitment. We have to understand that innovation is the future of our country. And creating a generation of innovators is really our highest priority if we're going to, first and foremost, create a sustainable planet. Second of all, create a vibrant economy and quality of life and way of life. And that all of us have to think about what's my role in helping to develop these capabilities in the young people with whom I come in contact. Be my, be they, you know, my kids, my, my students, my employees. People in the chat asking about any specific advice for what this would look like at the elementary school level. We have great models of really good education for creating innovators. Uh, some of the best Montessori schools, Reggio Emilio and others. You know, it's interesting, in the book I uncovered research that many of the most innovative and entrepreneurial successes in our economy, uh, Jeff Bezos, uh, the, the guys who co-founded uh, Google, and many others were graduates of Montessori schools. This came out in a book called The Innovator's DNA, the research that, that backed this up. So we actually know what the best models are at the elementary level, and have known it for a long, long time. Uh, problem is we've turned so much of elementary school into test prep. And so I think it's to go back and rediscover uh, the importance of creative play, the importance of kids having self-directed learning and other qualities like that. I actually think the, the greater challenge is at the high school level and breaking away from a curriculum that is far too dictated by uh, the, uh, the uh, college admissions expectations, which in fact are really... Hey, I think this is our final question. Uh, this is from William. What question could be posed to an audience of parents that will help them to think about 21st century learning imperatives that you promote? Great question. What do you most want for your children? What's most important? Material success? Do they need to um, replicate your lifestyle, do you think, to be happy? Or do they need something different? How important is it for your children, for their sense of happiness, to find and pursue a passion to make a difference? You know, these parents, many of them whom I interviewed, 
the, ch the parents of innovators kind of held their breath when they were parenting. Uh, Shanna Tellerman's parents come to mind because Shanna, at the age of seven, knew she wanted to be an artist, right? More than anything in the world. That's all she cared about was art all through elementary school, middle school, high school. You know, her parents are thinking, oh my God, how is she ever going to make a living? But they never said that aloud. They did the exact opposite. They turned a spare bedroom into an artist studio where she spent many of her happiest hours. So here's Shanna, the artist, graduating high school, not getting into the college she wanted to get into, got into another school on the strength of her artist portfolio. What is Shanna doing at the age of 29? She started a 3D um, design company that got bought by Autodesk, which is one of the largest um, CAD-CAM design corporations in America. At the age of 29, Shanna, the artist, is creating new software that will enable architects and engineers and others to design far more energy efficient buildings for the 21st century. So they had the faith that this child, if she pursued her passion, even if it was one that they thought, oh my gosh, there's no way in the world she's going to make a living from this, she'd be okay because she had a passion. She developed the discipline, the strength, the persistence, the perseverance to pursue that passion. She was going to be okay. And indeed, she's more than okay. She's giving back. She's making a difference in the world. So I think the real question for parents is, what do you most want for your children? Tony, thank you so much for coming on, and thank you for the book. my great pleasure, Steve. I, I always enjoy your conversations and uh, the great questions. You're very you nice. Good so we've been talking to Tony Wagner. The book is Creating Innovators, The Making of Young People Who Will Change the World. Thanks to Tony. Thanks for you for attending. We really appreciate it. Take care, everybody. Have a great uh, day or evening, depending on where you are.